Welcome to Policy Pod, P-O-R-F podcast. The Ideas Factory is an exclusive series by ORF that delves into the big geopolitical events that affect India and the world. Hello, you're watching The Ideas Factory. Ma'am Dakma. Joining me is Professor Harsh Pant. You're watching this at ORF online. Before we start, let me tell you, that the war between Russia and Ukraine has probably reached a strategic turning point according to the Ukrainian president, Zelensky. What does he mean by that? Also, the Russians are almost closing in on the capital city of Ukraine, Kiev. What does that mean? Humanitarian corridors are being constructed, people are getting evacuated, but the cities, the residential areas, the hospitals, maternity centers are still being bombarded. Uh, The world around Russia and Ukraine, and also other far-flung countries are getting affected in various ways because of this war. How is this war changing the world order? All that we will look at along with India's evacuation operation that took place. How successful was it and what does it mean for Indian diplomacy? So very warm welcome to you, Harsh. As we talk The war is intensifying, the war continues, the cities are being bombarded, hospitals, maternity centers are also being bombarded. Europe is seeing a humanitarian crisis. Uh, Probably it hasn't seen something like that since the World War, but since the Second World War. Uh, According to the UNHCR, apparently more than 2 million people have already left Ukraine. So huge refugee crisis also looming there around the countries, Poland and other countries which are bordering Ukraine and Russia. Uh, But as we're talking today, the uh, President Zelensky has also made an interesting comment on how this war has now reached or would be reaching soon a very strategic turning point. What can happen? We've also seen probably a softening of stand by Zelensky uh, when he said he wasn't very keen to join the NATO. Of course, you know, there is this uh, analysis, too, that NATO has uh, probably not lived up to the expectation. NATO has left Ukraine in the lurch. So what what is the strategic turning point that we're now looking at and what's going to happen? How is it going to unfold now? Thanks, Nagma. I think, uh, you know, for both uh, for both sides, it's a critical, uh, perhaps uh, an assessment of uh, of where, where they are at the moment after such a long, uh, you know, um, journey in this in this conflict which has been quite devastating um, for, for both countries i would say i mean uh, ukraine of course is being pummeled now badly it's an it's an almost an all-out effort by uh, by putin and and russia uh, and uh, and so the consequences are quite devastating with the humanitarian crisis looming the the country almost in shambles and most cities getting destroyed uh, so it's it's a it, it, you know it, it's something that that ukraine will find it very hard uh, to to come out of as a country that can sustain itself on its own, uh, and of course for Putin also it has been a reality check that you know all this these ideas that it would be an easy war, short sharp war. Uh, I think it's very clear that it has been none of that, and Mr. Putin's vulnerabilities, the chinks in, the, in his armor, have been exposed. Uh, that uh, you know for a for a for a country that relies primarily on its assertion of a military might. Uh, we have seen not being, uh, you know, uh, uh, Russian military getting bogged down, getting uh, logistically uh, hampered. Uh, and I think uh, the way we are looking at Mr. Putin inviting uh, mercenaries to join his army is also an indication that somehow uh, the war has uh, has just exposed Russian army for what it is. For all the talk, it is not 
uh, it is not really the army that many thought it would be. Uh, so I think for, for both sides, it's a question now of where do, we, where do they go from here? Uh, and uh, and it, is, it is interesting that the last, uh, you know, that, that uh, this, we saw this week, uh, for example, uh, foreign minister level talks uh, in Turkey, and although nothing came out of it, uh, but I think uh, what uh, Mr. Putin's, I think, according to his words, that uh, he's saying that people are telling him that some positive developments are happening, uh, that there is a positive uh, trend in, in talks. And you have Mr. Zelensky saying that, look, this is a strategic turning point. So clearly, I think both sides are looking at uh, you know the possibility that this will uh, escalate to a point uh, where it would be impossible not to ignore uh, the realities of uh, you know, of some kind of an engagement which can produce some, uh, you know, uh, modicum of uh, stability. Uh, and, and I think at, at this point, that's the aim for both sides, because beyond that, it's very difficult to visualize. Uh, and we have seen, you know, uh, Poland, for example, uh, and, 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 uh, and America uh, pushing Poland back on, on this question of uh, hosting American fighters. Uh, and, and America is refusing to do that. Mr. Biden publicly saying that, look, America's entry of any kind into the conflict would mean a World War Three, and they don't want to do that. So I think there are messages from all sides saying that this has to be a limited war. This has to be a controlled war to, to an extent possible. And both sides, uh, primarily the Ukrainians and the Russians, will have to figure out a way uh, of responding to the new realities that have been set in motion by, by Mr. Putin and his, and his army. And I think at the moment, we are not looking uh, at... Uh, uh, Perhaps uh, you know one of the one of the more interesting statements that also came out, uh, which was from the Russian side, saying that we are not looking for regime change. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yes. so in, in in a sense, I think both sides are, are recalibrating their initial objectives, uh, and perhaps that would allow for the possibility of a uh, you know of a diplomatic resolution. But again, uh, you know we so, don't know what is you know what sure. what the two sides have in mind and and how, especially Mr. Putin would like to play this out. Sure. As you pointed out, it's a very interesting comment uh, coming from Russian Foreign Ministry, uh, Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson actually saying that we're not looking for a regime change. If they're not looking for a regime change. Now, uh, what is it? Do you think Putin has achieved what he wanted uh, in the sense that, you know, the lib uh, liberation of uh, certain areas and uh, NATO's entry almost not a possibility there. So is that what he was aiming at? And has he in a way emerged in some way? I mean, he's lost the bigger war in, in terms of the perception, look at the human casualty. But uh, has he been successful in keeping NATO away and achieving what he actually was looking at? Uh, yes, to a certain extent, I would say yes. But you know, NATO was never there in the picture from from the beginning. You know, when when you uh, when you were looking at uh, when Mr. Putin has mo had mobilized his forces around uh, Ukraine. Uh, and uh, when it was uh, being suggested that this is for diplomatic maneuvering and he wanted to, you know, he wanted to come to some sort of an understanding with Europe on the post-Cold War uh, security order in Europe. Uh, even then, uh, I think uh, NATO was constantly signaling that they have not, they are not inviting Ukraine to be a member of NATO. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, uh, if, if, if this were the ambition, this could have been achieved without much bloodshed. Because uh, clearly, even Emmanuel Macron, when, during his visit to, uh, to uh, Russia, said that we understand Russia has legitimate security concerns, and yeah, there is the, you know we, we can we can reach out an understanding. But I think certainly it seems to me that Mr. Putin was trying to achieve regime change. Uh, there mm -hmm. is no doubt about it. And now saying that they, uh, I think uh, they don't want a regime change. They are signaling something very important. They are signaling that I think the nationalism that they have unleashed in Ukraine 
would be very difficult to manage, even if they have a pliant government in uh, Kiev. And I think that's a message that has gone out perhaps to, to Russia and perhaps to the larger region that, look, uh, you know, uh, Zelensky has been commendable in terms of mobilizing uh, Ukraine, mobilizing Ukrainians, and the Ukrainian sense of resistance has been quite strong. It is not that they have withered away. Uh, still, if you look at those areas where, where Russian forces are occupying, you have, every day you are looking at those visuals when Ukrainians are marching down, defying the orders from Russians. So I think uh, it's, at some level, uh, Moscow should have, would have realized that this is, you know, if, if you get bogged into Ukraine uh, as an occupying power, uh, then I think uh, the future is really very bleak because certainly the only thing you will get is insurgency, resistance, low-level uh, violence, which which will be an everyday feature. So I think rather than that, allowing the, the present regime to continue and come to some sort of a strategic understanding that they will be away from Ukraine, that they would, uh, you know, the, either they would be a buffer or perhaps neutral. And it is it is therefore, uh, you know, during the during the foreign minister's conference that, that, that therefore Ukrainian foreign minister said that actually what Russians are asking is surrender. Uh, you know the, that you know because I think that's what they they want that uh, that at the end of the day Ukrainian government should sign should give some commitment about what they would do post uh, this invasion. Yes, but what what uh, I mean during our last episode also I remember we discussed you know, that there has to be a a face saver. What could be a face saver now for both the countries? Also, Zelensky has kind of changed his stance and is now signaling a softening of his stance and saying that he's not very keen, he's not going to go down on his knees and beg for a membership, NATO, uh, right. you know, in, being included in NATO. So all that there, uh, after after so much loss of human lives in Ukraine, he's also had a change of heart. And, and now what could be the face saver for both? If we look at that, the diplomatic talks are still on. Um, also, the Russians, look, they're looking at, looking at the, uh, their army, the size uh, and their capability. They are only closing in on the capital city now. Was it deliberate? Was it a calibrated move of going slow? Uh, or if the Russians had wanted, then they could have already achieved this. Uh, what were they aiming at? Or keeping the war uh, you know, at a low level and just prolonging it? Yes, I see. I think uh, uh, my sense is that Mr. Zelensky <clears throat> is offering a face saver by saying that, look, uh, let's, you know, I, I won't join NATO. Uh, by, by saying this, he's, he's giving this pretext to, to Russians that perhaps <clears throat> this is a conversation that can begin now uh, as to where, uh, you know, what, what sort of red lines are for Russia and for Ukraine. So if, he, if he's saying that and if Russians accept that, then I think this can be the beginning of a of a prolonged negotiations about all right if you're not going to join nato then what are you know what kind of a future strategic posture you will have and then discussing it between the two and, and deciding that uh, you know uh, some some modus vivendi is reached so i'm sure this is something that that would uh, be of interest to russia and russia would take it forward but i think in terms of military strategy uh, i think that in, you know that uh, it was uh, it, you know the, the the idea that you you know that that the where the, the the you know the, the the sheer demonstration of your military might would be enough to uh, for to to push Ukrainians into a corner uh, that it would be enough to tell them that look Russia is this military behemoth it is mobilizing forces it is it is closing in on you you better give up and I think that that perhaps was the sense when it started and we are also I mean uh, these are uncorroborated reports but we are also hearing some western sources saying that look uh, there are tensions emerging uh, in the in the in the russian inner circle mr putin has apparently fired some uh, some kgb analysts i mean we don't know the credibility mm. but certainly i think that the the internal uh, dynamic of of a very closed knit um, uh, putin and his and his inner circle uh, 
tell you that when you have when you make decisions based on uh, you know what what is called group think you you end up uh, suboptimal with suboptimal outcomes so certainly i think the initial assessment that the, the sheer demonstration of might would be enough to make ukraine crumble has not been that effective and now of course they've changed their tactic and they're going in they're you know all out uh, and, and and there are certainly signs of of uh, pushing the military machinery uh, along the way that that gives a sense that look uh, russians are here so you better negotiate and perhaps that's the reason why we are also seeing the negotiations move the way they are they're, they're moving and of course nato's uh, you know inability or nato's uh, lack of desire to be part of this uh, you know this conundrum uh, also mm-hmm. signifies that there are limits to what the western countries would they, they are supplying weapons but the, the, those weaponry the, the, that kind of support can only do so much uh, when you have a russian uh, an army like russia in front of you so i think all these yes. factors are complicating the ground realities and 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 i and i think russia have changed their military uh, tactic in the last few days as they are looking uh, for a prolonged conflict and i don't think given their experience at the moment uh, they would be very interested uh, in in a prolonged occupation of europe they would be just uh, interested in ensuring that some of their critical demands are met yes uh, how about the western support in the form of sanctions all those the us sanctions that we saw here um, you know cutting off russia from the global banking system along with of course many retail chains closing down that doesn't really make a difference but in terms of the russian economy and the sanctions on on the russian petroleum uh, first of all the russian economy uh, how will it deal with it how much can china help there but also the impact on europe uh, putting a sanction on russian oil would impact europe hugely and the supply of gas and europe probably cannot or would not be able to take that uh, the alternatives uh, what what are the alternatives and is that viable and looking at iran and other countries also moscow has been threatening that all these sanctions is taking very seriously and now also it has said that western sanctions against russia could cause the international space station to crash uh, that's what the head of the russian space agency uh, roscosmos has warned on uh, i mean just yesterday so all these sanctions and how is that going to play out of course most people say the sanctions are not the way to go forward and they've not been effective Yes, I mean sanctions are. Uh, you know, we have seen historically uh, that sanctions are only effective if you have the entire uh, you know uh, system uh, working in unison. And of course, here a, a large part of the system is is China. That if so long as China is is there uh, to help Russia. Uh, you know uh, vis-a-vis uh, the west perhaps there is an alternative but i do think that given the reliance on on uh, of of uh, you know and given the energy interdependence between russia and europe uh this this will cost both sides and what what i think uh, and you know uh, uh, a large part of this narrative of of uh, of uh, of this conflict has been that look uh, mr putin um uh maybe may have won uh, you know uh, this this conflict uh may have won this battle but he's losing the war and i and i think there is some truth to that in the sense that i think if you look at the larger economic subsystem of of russia that is that has come crashing down and for all the talk of of you know western decline and and american decline uh what this conflict also uh, exemplifies is that the global financial architecture is still being controlled by the west and america and the western countries have enormous leverage when they want to come together when they when they are, when it's possible for them to come together they can impose significant costs and and for all for all the bravado in 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 moscow i think it's quite clear that these economic sanctions are going to be very very difficult to uh, get around with 
you know, you you can't you cannot really create an, a global financial mechanism overnight. I, you know, if, if if Russian banks are being cut off from the SWIFT system, then that means that those banks are going to be out of the global financial system for a, you know for a very long time. And I think what Mr. Putin has done is a, he has ironically clarified for Europe a number of the choices that they were not willing to make. For example, the, the German chancellor, when he says that, look, we really cannot have this paradigm where Americans are providing for security and we continue to engage Russia uh, in economic terms. We have to stand up on our own if we want a strategic autonomy. We have to make those choices. And therefore, Germany is willing to invest in the military now. Uh, Germany uh, has not certified the Nord Stream uh, project, uh, which is one of the critical projects, a uh, very important one. Uh, so, uh, and, and a lot of the countries, you know, there's uh, this EU is, uh, is coming out with a policy of reducing dependence on Russia over the, over the next nine months or this year, in fact. So I think a number of those issues that Europe was not willing to take on, uh, Europe is now in, increasingly uh, signaling that given the circumstances, they have no other option. So it will have certainly costs for Russia. But the question is how much China, how, how, what kind of a role China is willing to play? Will China go all out? Or will China play this this you know one step backwards and two step? Uh, That's what China that. has been doing. It's be, it's not been very very clear in what it actually uh, wants. It's been uh, playing. It's it's been uh, unequivocal, not been unequivocal, and uh, the the stance is kind of not very clear. So uh, why and what can we make of that? See, China. I I don't think China is very happy with with this crisis. Partly because uh, a it uh, you know for a country that's for all the talk is still uh, reliant on global economy to sustain its own domestic economy. You know, I think around 30% of Chinese exports go to Europe and to, uh, to, to the American markets. Mm -hmm. Now, at a time when, when uh, uh, China is not doing very well domestically, when there are challenges for China all around, uh, and when its growth rate is, go you know, by all projections, is going to be uh, greatly uh, struck by um, uh, COVID and, and other factors, uh, it is very important to keep those markets open. And so I don't think uh, for China, uh, it, it is an option that they can really rally with, with Russia. And uh, I think they, will, they, they are saying all kinds of things. But when it comes to what they are doing, they are very uh, diplomatically managing this, this relationship with Europe. Uh, you know, in, in, in last week, uh, uh, Chinese president in his remarks with, uh, with the French president and German chancellor was actually very, very open that this is a conflict that, that cannot go on, that, uh, that China believes that uh, diplomacy should be used more effectively to find a solution to this problem and that he uh, he understands the, the challenge and China also is uh, providing humanitarian aid to to Ukraine so there is a there is a sense there that you know that something uh, uh, that this this perhaps uh, has taken a turn which the Chinese thought would not happen that it could have been resolved diplomatically and the, the longer it continues uh, the and the greater impact it uh, it continues to have on global economy uh, it, it certainly China would be uh, you know, concerned about the trajectory of this uh, of, uh, of this problem, and of course of what it means uh, for uh, you know for the larger fault lines in global politics. Because if you have the sense increasingly, which was already happening before, that fault lines are developing between you know a China-led order and, and, and a U.S.-led Western order, mm -hmm. then I think this only consolidates this. So, so at the end of the day, China might be. Uh, you know, a little bit scared that not only it has to 
uh, you know, carry its own burden, but increasingly the burden of Russia, which is not really an economic power in any uh, sense of the term and, and can create all these uh, problems for uh, for China. So I think uh, it's, you know, uh, many people have argued that, look, this is this is a uh, uh, this is a great victory for China. It certainly is to an extent that, that you know, um, Americans are occupied, Western countries are occupied with Russia. But I don't think uh, Chinese are particularly, uh, would be particularly happy with the way the things have turned out. And so, uh, uh, you know, uh, increasingly, uh, there is a concern about, for example, Taiwan uh, and, yes. and what it means for Taiwan. So I, I, I think yes, there are multiple issues uh, involved in Chinese calculations here. Sure. So it's getting a lot of other countries. What has Russia done in Ukraine? It's getting other countries worried too. And of course, the U.S. response on Ukraine is also getting countries worried. Like, uh, you know, we've all heard that comment from uh, ex-Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who's actually asked U.S. to ditch its very ambiguous uh, stunt and be very clear, uh, give up on the strategic ambiguity on Taiwan and be very clear because if something like this happens in Taiwan, then it means a lot for Japan. Uh, since, you know, look at how where Japan and Taiwan are, are placed. How close are they? So that is getting other countries worried and a possibility of something like this happening in, at this site uh, could be disastrous. So, uh, and, uh, you know, yeah. will US be ready to give up its strategic ambiguity? Yeah, I think it, you know, it, it, is, it is interesting from multiple perspectives. One, I think if uh, if, you are sitting in, you know, you are a Chinese Communist Party decision maker and you're looking at what Ukraine has done. You'd be worried that if you have, uh, if a country like Ukraine can put up this resistance, then certainly Taiwanese are no pushover. You know, it's, first of all, it's an island. Uh, it has multiple layers of defense. It is one of the most cutting edge technological powers in the world. So to, uh, to I think that assumption that somehow uh, China would prevail in, a, in, a, in an easy fight with, uh, with the Taiwan is also, I think, uh, given what is happening in Ukraine, many would be worried that this, you know, this does not portend very well. But I think on the larger strategic question, certainly uh, there is a, the, you know, the, as to what Taiwan and Taiwan's friends should do, uh, Shinzo Abe's comments are, are are quite categorical. That that I think increasingly uh, there is a sense of discomfort with the with the American position and with American reliability. So if questions are being asked about American credibility, then America should provide some assurance that it remains a credible partner. And one of the ways uh, Shinzo Abe is saying, well, you, you remove that ambiguity. It's, it, you know, uh, but again, you know, it's, it's one of those questions whether removing that ambiguity would lead to, for America, a frontline crisis, just like what is happening in Ukraine might lead to, uh, you know, if, if America, as Mr. Biden is saying, if we enter its World War III, if America removes this ambiguity, what it means for, for uh, Chinese belligerents. So, but I think there, is a, there, is, there, is, there are broader questions, especially if you have Afghanistan, you have had Ukraine. Uh, so there are questions being asked about American reliance, uh, reliance on the US, Amer American credibility, and those questions are not going to go away. But I think it, it's, it's slightly uh, more complex for Chinese calculations because, uh, you know, Ukraine and Taiwan can't really be compared, uh, you know, they, they are apples and oranges, but also the question of, you know, Taiwanese stature as a cutting edge economic power means uh, that uh, for China to believe that this is a template they can follow, it will also be foolhardy. So I think there are multiple issues uh, around this, but I think the debate on the Indo-Pacific, on Taiwan, mm -hmm. um, will only get uh, enhanced uh, because of the challenges that many of the powers, including India, would be feeling that Indo-Pacific would, would now be off the radar for, 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 for the West uh, if, if these trends continue in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm.
Absolutely. Many are actually looking at uh, this whole Ukraine-Russian episode. It's also a fiasco by the West. But very quickly, uh, Harsh, I would like your comment on the Indian, uh, you know, the, the evacuation operation that took place, Mission Ganga that took place, and uh, thousands of Indian students and Indian citizens were brought back safely, though they, though the government faced uh, some criticism back home um, on, on, on the delay and uh, the initial uh, trouble that the Indian students faced over there. But... Uh, people, all the students have been brought back. So uh, what, and for this, uh, you know, the Indian government had to deal with the Russians, the Ukrainians. We also saw that the Indian uh, embassy helped its neighbors, Bangladesh, about 17 or so people, the Bangladeshi people were also evacuated. Sheikh Hasina thanked Prime Minister. We've seen people from Nepal, from Pakistan being rescued. So what did this really mean for the Indian diplomacy? I think uh, it, it seems, uh, you know, uh, it seems to have been a well-crafted uh, diplomatic uh, maneuver by India because, you know, whenever you have a conflict situation where there's a life conflict, evacuating citizens uh, becomes a problem. And especially in a conflict like this, where the lines were blurred from the very beginning, where it was not entirely clear, you know, where Russian control is and where Ukrainian control is. Uh, and I think uh, given the circumstances, it meant that India had to have its channel of communication open with not only the Russians, but also the Ukrainians, as well as the neighboring countries uh, through which the evacuation uh, finally took place. So it was, it was I think, uh, 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 an operation that required uh, almost a whole of government approach. And this is what we saw when you know, senior ministers were there, stationed there for, for a few days uh, monitoring the situation. But I think it, it required that kind of an approach uh, right from the top with Prime Minister himself talking to uh, leaders of various countries and the the uh, you know the, the bureaucracy managing uh, the the uh, you know the nitty gritty of the evacuation. So I think overall it has turned out to be uh, thankfully um, uh, you know a crisis uh, uh, you know an evacuation a, a mission that that uh, did not have many crisis crisis points, um, but uh, it could have easily gone very wrong. And you know because people were being evacuated even as shelling was taking place, even as war was uh, real, uh, it was happening in real time. Uh, so, so one can only be thankful that all, all citizens and all students came out uh, unhurt. I, I think there was one uh, exception, uh, but, uh, but by and large, uh, mostly uh, students uh, were brought out. Uh, but it also tells you the story of how the world is changing so rapidly that a state's ability to protect its own citizens in faraway lands is contingent on uh, not simply on that state's capabilities, but also on, on so many other factors that are often beyond a state's control. So I think uh, the, the larger message here is that, uh, uh, you know, as India globalizes and as the world uh, becomes uh, its oyster, where people are going out, traveling, studying, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in involved in professional work, uh, and with Indian governments taking this position that we would work for those citizens or we would ensure they are safe, uh, at times, you know, that commitment comes with significant costs. And we should be prepared to, uh, to acknowledge those costs and be ready for those costs because it won't be always that easy. Those decisions are difficult and those decisions mean that they have to be uh, you know, managed in a more uh, professional way increasingly as the world becomes more and more complex.
Sure. So, uh, I mean, that's it from us on this episode of the Ideas Factory. But as we talk and between today and the next week, a lot would have happened. The war has reached a strategic turning point, as Ukrainian president himself is saying, uh, let's see what is the way out. And uh, uh, as of today, the Russian forces are closing in on the capital uh, of Ukraine. Uh, the, the president has said that uh, Kiev is a city under siege. Bombings are taking place, airstrikes, civilian casualties. So the war is uh, right now uh, in full-blown war is taking place there. So we'll keep a watch on that. Thank you so much, Harsh, for joining. And thanks to all of you for being with us. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.